I'm going to share with you a sermon I have entitled, I'm not missing anything, right? <laughs> okay, we'll make sure I didn't miss anything else. Um, my sermon this morning is entitled, A Life, A Life More Abundant. Sounds biblical? It is. So what makes life worth living? What gives purpose and meaning to your life? One of atheism's early gurus was a guy named Bertrand Russell. How many have ever heard of Bertrand Russell? Okay. Here's one of his statements. Life on earth is just an accident, and there is no ultimate meaning or purpose to life other than existing. You're just, you're just here. We're just here until we're not. Can you imagine living with that mindset? Can you imagine believing that after all you've been through in your 30, 40, 50, 70, 80, 90 years or your first decade, that it's all going to come to an end, and poof, there's nothing. No. A Christian biblical worldview rejects that philosophy. We reject the idea that a life is just an accident of nature. We reject the concept that our life has neither purpose nor meaning. And we reject the philosophy that proposes that when the clock winds down on our 25,500 days on earth, that's the end. I don't believe it. I don't believe that you believe it. As Bible students, we recognize that God purposed us to be here and gifted us with life and planted us on a planet designed to sustain life. And then he told us, live life to the fullest. I mean, we shouldn't, my, my Yiddish friends have the expression, we shouldn't be walking around with a long face all the time. We should have a joy in our heart. We should have a sense of purpose. We should be able to look at the world and see it through God's eyes, see it through the, through the prism of Scripture, and realize, as bad as things may be, there is a happy ending, brother and sister. For you and me, perhaps the happy ending is while we're alive, we're with Christ. But when we say good night here, we're saying good morning up there, amen? And I'm looking forward to that daybreak. John 10.10, 10, the second half of the verse, I am come that they, that's you, might have life and have it more abundantly in fullest measure. He's speaking about a quality of life, not a quantity of life. Not everybody gets to live to 100. But when you're here, what's the quality of your life? Is it miserable? Is it, is it meaningless? Is it negative? Or is it all the things we're talking about this morning? Life lived in its fullness with Christ at its center. How do we enjoy life to its fullest measure? So I'd like to go to our text this morning, which is Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 to 5. I ask you to stand with me as I read. Isaiah 9, 49, 1 to 5. Listen, O isles, unto me, and hearken ye people from afar. The Lord hath called me from the womb. From the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name. And he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword, and the shadow of his hand hath he hid me, and made me a polished shaft in his quiver hath he hid me. And he said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I've labored in vain. 
I have spent my strength for naught, and in vain have I spent my strength in north and in vain, yet surely my judgment is with the Lord and my work with my God. And now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him. Though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in mine eyes of the Lord, and my God shall supply my strength. Thank you. You may be seated. Verse 1. Like Isaiah says, he was not an accident. Verse 1 says that you are not an accident. The prophet Isaiah tells us the truth. You must recognize that before you were born, God knew you. Roll it around. Before you were born, God knew you. He knew you before your parents knew you. He knew you before your obstetrician knew you. And he knew you before ultrasound knew you. While you were, while you were being knit together, he knew you. God says... He knew and loved you right down to your DNA, that which makes you who you are. He wasn't looking the other way when the two cells that begin life connected and started down the path that made you, you. Isaiah 49, verse 1, the second half. Before you were born, God knew your what? He knew your name, and that is significant because your name is unique to you. When people hear your name, it elicits a response. All right, <laughs> somebody's laughing, I don't know what that means, but uh, <laughs> think about it. When your name is mentioned, people have a reaction. Sometimes it's a good reaction, sometimes it's not a good reaction, depending on your interconnection with them. You sometimes want to just forget that truth, but it's best to forget it. Your name elicits a reaction, a reaction when people mention it. It started out as a blank slate, and through the years, you wrote on that slate of life what your name would come to mean. I mean, when you were born, nobody even knew your name, right? And then when you finally got a name, people only expected, desired, and wanted, and prayed for the very best for you. But as time went on, as the pages turned, as the calendar flipped from week to month to year to decade, you had already begun to write on the tablet of your life and the testimony on your life and the story of your life what your name would come to mean. What did your name come to mean? When people think of you, what do they think of? How did they see you? How did they perceive you? Through the years, Certain names have come to fame and infamy. Here's a few examples of people's names and what they meant. Judas, his name became synonymous with what? Betrayal. We all, you know, it becomes a phrase. Don't be a Judas. Well, automatically we know somebody's going to betray somebody. Hitler's name became synonymous with evil. I mean, Hitlerian doesn't mean hysterical. It means this, it's, it's a terrible thing. Math, uh, Martin Luther King's name became synonymous with civil rights. And Billy Graham's name became significant, symbolic and, and uh, synonymous with evangelism and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not only in stadiums, but in his life. Isaiah's name defined him as the prophet who spoke out against a nation's problems with sin and pointed to God's answer of salvation. He was out there what they used to say, speaking truth to power. 
We are so timid these days, and so many people are afraid to speak and say what's in their mind and on their heart. You don't have to be, and you should not be venomous. You should be able to speak truth in love and yet not be afraid to speak the truth. Isaiah realized only what we do for God matters. Life is so transitory. I mean, it seems like we're here one day and gone the next. I mean, we in our own congregation over the last 18 months have experienced the loss of so many loved ones. They were here among us. We remember the Sunday before we heard that they had gone home to be with the Lord. They were with us. We embraced them. We gave them a kiss. We gave them a hug. And gone. That's life. And if we don't live life with that in the back burners of our mind, that it's transitory. And what we do for God will be what's left as our legacy, as our testimony, as how people will remember us. How do you want to be remembered? It's never too late. We can attempt to find meaning in life in so many ways. Solomon in Ecclesiastes said he could find meaning in the fact that anything he wanted that was material, he could have. He was king, ultimate ruler. Whatever he decided he wanted, he got. All he had to do was put out a command. I want that horse. He got it. I want that woman. He did that several hundred times. It's okay, Estelle. <laughs> I mean, he did these things. Whatever he wanted, he got. And what did he find out? After I got it all, my experience was that it left me empty. It left me confused. It left me more unhappy than, I started, than before I started grabbing and could. And it left me totally unfulfilled. And there are so many people still grasping for meaning and trying to find it in material things. And as soon as they get it in their hands, it's like sand flowing through their fingers and they wind up with a handful of Zippo. Nothing. Because none of that stuff lasts. In an article in the London Daily Mail by Rebecca Hardy, co-creator of the TV hit show America's Got Talent, a man named Simon Cowell. He's rich, he's famous, but uh, Hardy writes, that doesn't mean he's happy. He says, this is Cowell's words, quote, if I went to a psychiatrist, it would be a long session. I get very dark moods for no reason. I can be having the best time, and yet I'm utterly and totally miserable. I get very antisocial and depressed, much of his time, he suspects, is that he is a victim of his own success. Pew Research has polled a number of people, thousands some odd people, asking them, what makes you happy? Where is happiness found? Answer, more stuff, bigger house, better neighborhood or school, better job, and the best restaurants. Our text tells us that mindset misses the point of why we are on earth. We're not on earth for the stuff that we can collect. The reality is you can try to hug it. You can try to hold it. You can try to take it to bed with you at night to keep you warm. But stuff ain't going to cut it. 
God didn't make you for stuff. He made you for himself. And nothing that you're going to accumulate in this life is going to satisfy. Verse 5 of our text, Isaiah says, we were born to serve the Lord. What does it mean to serve the Lord? Isaiah was made for his situation. God shaped his personality, his giftedness, his talents, his strengths and weaknesses to be an effective and to be effective in what it was that God had called him to do. That's you. Psalm 1.3, it says the believer is, quote, like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in due season. His leaf also shall not wither, fade, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. God has planted you and purposed you to be where you are. Where is that? Where are you? You're here right now, but then you go home, and then you go on the job. And don't separate here from there, because wherever you are, you are branded. You carry with you the name of Jesus Christ. You can't escape that on your own. You have to push it out of the way. You have to cover it up. You have to decry it, disclaim it. But you're a child of, of the king. You're a child of Jesus Christ, no matter where you go. You're not just a Christian here in the church, although some people think along those lines, and they shouldn't. The church is all of us. This is a meeting house, a place where the believers meet. We're blessed to be able to meet other believers around the world with our ability to reach out to them. Not in, you're not in your job by accident, God planted you there for a purpose. You're not in the church by accident, he planted you here for a purpose. You're not listening or watching on live stream by accident, you're doing so because God brought us together for his purpose. You're not going through your present circumstance by accident, God allows joys, trials, challenges, and issues into your life for a purpose. We go through things and we say, I don't know why I'm going through this. Get on your knees and pray and ask the Lord, why am I going through this? Some people say, well, God, I must be doing something terrible because God is punishing me. You may have something to learn, and you almost always do when tough times come. God puts you through a mill occasionally to test your mettle. Yes, it sometimes things happen, and there are consequences of those things that happen that are not right and you pay the consequences. God never, God never promised that you wouldn't have consequences. He always promised that when you got in deep water and you were about up to your neck and you thought you were going to drown or you thought everything was going to collapse in around you, God said, I'll be there for you there. I'll go through the deep waters with you. But I'm not going to exempt you from the consequences of your own actions or the consequences of how life works sometimes. Even if you're in a hospital or a nursing home, God has purposed you to serve him. You serve him at home by your testimony with your family. You serve him on the job by your honesty, integrity, and work ethic. These are the qualities that open the door for sharing Christ with others. Now, you may not get any recognition or appreciation from your employer if you're honest, a person of integrity, having good work habits. They may not appreciate it, but they're not... They may, they're, they're the ones that sign your check, but they're not the ones you as a Christian work for. 
Your boss is God. Your employer is Jesus Christ. Your boss is the guy who signs your check. But you appeal to God, and his standards for how you work are higher than your bosses will ever be because you represent Christ. The company may not know or care what you're doing, but God does, and he's watching. He's planted you on that job for a purpose. You serve the Lord at church when you love and care for the members of the spiritual family. Together we serve him. We reach beyond the walls of the meeting house. We share the saving gospel with those who don't know Christ as Savior. And we bring Christ's serving gospel to the hurting, the hungry, the distressed, and the, and the disenfranchised. We serve the Lord by reaching out to others in our sphere of influence. And what we do together as the church is, is the thing that's going to matter in the final analysis. Amwell Church has a reputation. From what I hear outside of this body, it's a good reputation. It's a Christ-honoring reputation. I hear it a lot. Do you know that? That the reputation of this church is the sum of all its parts. In other words, it's what you do when you're out there representing Jesus and people know that you're part of this fellowship. What we do together by the movement and direction of the Holy Spirit will make a difference in people's life and the world around us. God calls us to accomplish more together for the kingdom than any one of us can accomplish on our own. You know, a, a, a cord that's got many strands to it is strong, stronger than a cord that doesn't. They say that uh, wood that's nailed together and stacked, nailed together. Uh, what's the term for that, Mark? Laminated wood is stronger than a regular piece of wood. I'm so glad I got Mark out there to be the answer man. You got that? It's good. Okay. Yeah, so we're kind of laminated together. And because we're laminated together, we're stronger together. And God puts us together. And what's holding us together is the Holy Spirit. And what does he do with us? He gets us to go beyond our comfort zone. I mean, for some people, obviously, it's hard to get out of bed on a Sunday morning. But you got to get up out of bed sometime. Wait a minute, I better back up. I'm starting to sound like the president. It's time for you to... <laughs> got to be careful with that stuff. A key to overcoming anger, bitterness, despairing, disappointment, anxiety, self-pity, and self-absorption is what? How do you get out of that funky mood you're in? Do something for somebody else. Find a person who needs the healing touch. Pray with them. Serve them a meal. Do something. I've heard, I heard the last couple of weeks of folks who have gone to somebody's home who couldn't wash their own hair and just needed somebody to come and wash their hair. And some folks from our congregation went and did that. Praise the Lord, and God bless them for it. Let go of your negative attitude. Adopt the positive life attitude that God made you to exude. People will not be drawn to Jesus if you don't represent him. You're, you know, you're the only Bible some people read. You're the only testimony some people have. You're the only representation of Jesus Christ and the church that some people in your sphere of influence know. What do they know? Let's go back to the beginning of the sermon. 
What does your name mean when it's brought up into, to people? And is one of the things that your name mean that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? That's the important thing. The greatest service you can do for a person is to introduce them to Jesus. It's the most loving thing you can do. People know and need to know that there is a hell to shun and a hell to heaven to gain. And now it's time to make a reservation for them for a home in eternity. Now's the time. Now's the time for you to speak up. Not tomorrow, not another day, not another week, not when it's convenient, not when you feel like it, but when the Holy Spirit starts to speak to you in a conversation and you hear something in the, something in the tone of the person or you hear something that just kind of elicits and you say, I should speak up for Jesus right now. Do it. Don't stand in the background. Don't stand off center stage. It comes a time that that's your moment. What will you do with your moment? Because your moments are God-induced. Your moments are presented to you on a platter by Jesus. What are you going to do when it's your turn? What are you going to do? Since it's the baseball season, I thought I'd throw this in for a person who has absolutely no interest in baseball, except for the Mets because of my dear wife. What are you going to do when it's your turn at bat? Here's a story. The 1908 National League season saw a fierce struggle between the Chicago Cubs and New York Giants. When they met with a pennant on the line, there was a last-minute change in the Giant lineup. The Giants' first baseman had, sprained, had a sprained back, and substituting for him was an eager 19-year-old named Fred Merkel who was thought to be a rising star in baseball. The game was tied in the bottom of the ninth. The Giants were at bat. There were two outs and two men on base. The winning run was on third, and Fred Merkel was on first. The batter hit a single. The runner on third lumbered home. The Giants had apparently won the game in the pennant. Jubilant Giant fans poured out onto the field, while Fred Merkel was still on his way to second. Alarmed by the crowd, suddenly, he bear, suddenly bearing down on him and convinced the game was over, he ran straight to the clubhouse. He didn't go all the way to second base. The Chicago, this means nothing to me. No. <laughs> the Chicago second baseman noticed that Merkel hadn't bothered to touch second. If he could get the ball and touch second himself, the winning run would be canceled by the forced out. First, he had to find the ball. On the, one of the New York coaches saw what was happening, and he ran for the ball and threw it into the stands. Team is, ah, <laughs> oh boy, sports breed teammanship. <laughs> and, uh, and character. A fan in a brown bowler caught it and started home with his trophy. Two Cubs players chased the man through the mob and tried to take the ball away from him. When he resisted, they knocked him down, grabbed the ball, ran back to the field, threw it to their second baseman, who, holding the ball, jumped up and down on the base to make sure the umpire saw what he had done. As a result, New York lost the game and the pennant. And though Fred Merkel stuck it out for 14 more years in baseball, he never got over the reputation of being a man responsible for losing the pennant. 
A lot of people think they're safe and they're heading home. They think they're going to heaven, but they haven't, but they haven't yet touched base. They haven't put their faith and trust in Christ. They haven't confessed their sin. They haven't repented. They haven't asked Christ into their heart. They haven't acknowledged that Jesus died on a cross for their sin, was buried, and rose again three days later. They haven't made that admonition, and as a result, they're missing it. Don't give up on people around you. Don't let Satan get you down. No matter what you're going through, God has you in his hand. You are his children. He loves you. He will never let you go. I say, God, why do you keep hanging on to me? I am not worthy of that. And the voice comes back. Nobody is. You certainly are not. (laughs) But I love you. I love that word that accompanies the fact that God loves me. He loves me unconditionally. And that's his love for you and you, you, and for the people in your sphere of influence. And so this is why I encourage you to speak when you have the opportunity. God will let you know. And this is why I also encourage you to invite somebody to come with you to church. When you do, it'll pay dividends for them. It'll pay dividends for you. God bless you this morning because God wants for you a life more abundant. Let's pray. And we thank you, dear Lord, for your precious love for us. No greater love has anyone for us than Christ who laid down his life for us. And he loves us despite of our shortcomings and despite of where we wish we were but aren't. He loved us in the womb. He loved us at birth. He loved us through our formative years. He loves us in our old age. And he's promised never to leave us, never to forsake us, and never to let us go. So great a love. In Christ's name, amen.